This is Tom Leonard with a note to our listeners. Uh, there were important developments in the predicted uh, case uh, after our initial podcast recording. So we have uh, included a short addendum recording with uh, the leadership of Predicted to explain the developments, the more recent developments. Thank you very much. Hello, and welcome back to TPI's podcast, To Think Minimum. It's Tuesday, January 24th, 2023. I'm Tom Leonard, President Emeritus and Senior Fellow at the Technology Policy Institute, and I'm joined by Scott Walston, TPI's President and Senior Fellow and Senior Fellow Sarah O. Oh. Today, we'll be talking about political prediction markets and the regulation of those markets, focusing on the popular site predicted as a project of Victoria University of Wellington, New Zealand, and Aristotle, which is the contract service provider for predicted. Predicted was established to facilitate research into the way the markets forecast events. Predicted makes its data available to the academic community at no cost. I and many other people follow Predicted pretty closely during election seasons, and of course there are many active traders on the site, but if the Commodity Futures Trading Commission has its way, neither the traders nor the consumers of election information from the site will have it available for future elections because the CFTC has told Predicted to close down by February 15th. To help us understand what's going on, we are joined by John Phillips, the CEO of Aristotle, and David Mason, the firm's general counsel. Welcome, John and David. Thank you. It's good to be here. So probably most people who are listening to this podcast know something about predicted and about political event markets, but can you briefly explain what they are and how they operate? Sure. So predicted is a prediction market, as you say. It's used for forecasting, and it's structured like a stock market where you can buy or sell shares on forecasts that are uh, you wish to make. And for every person who thinks that something's going to happen, and the odds of that are 60%, there's somebody on the other side who's willing to take the other side of that at 40 cents or 40%. And then you've got a contract. And that price of that contract will vary depending on news events or other things that might affect what the odds are of that event occurring or not occurring. These are $1 winner-take-all contracts. So that if you put 60 cents down that Ted Cruz would be the Republican nominee in 2024, and he turns out to be the Republican nominee, your 60 cents is worth a dollar. The person on the other side of that put in 40 cents that this was not going to happen. He loses his 40 cents in that eventuality. The nice thing about it and the thing that makes it so engaging is that you don't have to wait until the general election or more broadly the event to occur in order to change your opinion and sell your position. So you may love Ted Cruz to be the nominee at 60 cents and you hate him at 70 cents. And so if you bought that share at 60 cents and his odds went up miraculously in this case to 70 cents, you'd have a 10 cent profit of which predicted takes 5%. I'm sorry, 10% of that. So we get a penny of that 10 cent profit when you make that share trade. Now you can go wait till he goes back down to 20 cents and buy those shares again if you think he's undervalued. Or you could take the other side of that bet. So that's how predicted functions. There are about 80,000 traders with at least $1 in their account currently. And it's a lively, entertaining, surprisingly, incredibly accurate, not perfect, but very accurate barometer or forecast mechanism on all kinds of political event questions. I'll stop there and see if you have any questions for me. Well, let's get into what's going on currently. As a background, how long has predicted been operating? 
So we received what's called a no-action letter or no-action relief from the Commodities Future Trading Commission to open up Predicted with Victoria University in October of 2014, right before the election. So it's been over eight years that we've been operating. What did you all do wrong that uh, has prompted the CFTC's action? Well, you have to ask the CFTC that, and I can guarantee you won't get an answer. That's part of the dilemma, and that's part of the reason why traders, educators who are using the predicted data, and Aristotle are suing the CFTC and asking for an injunction. So are political prediction markets or event markets more generally legal or illegal in the United States? I'll pitch that over to you, Dave. Sure. So certain event markets are permitted by the CFTC. And so, for instance, you can buy weather futures, right? If you want to predict how many hurricanes are going to make landfall in Florida in the hurricane season, uh, you can do that. And you can understand that would have obvious hedging implications or possibilities for insurance companies or other people like that. By statute, you can't have a prediction market on war, terrorism, assassination, those things for understandable reasons. And by a CFTC decision, known as the Nadex decision, the CFTC said that regulated commodities exchanges may not offer contracts on elections. And that's why Predicted, Victoria, and Aristotle had to called no action relief or an exception to the general rule to be allowed to offer these markets in the United States. So that decision, by the way, about election markets is, is under review right now. Another licensed exchange has asked the CFTC to reconsider that decision. They initially said they were going to make that decision by October in time for the election. They didn't do that. Then they said January. They didn't make that deadline. They've now extended it to March. So they, I mean, you know, looking at it from the outside, they seem to have a bias against this type of market. Is that, do you think that's accurate? I mean, well, they've certainly been reluctant to engage in it. Part of it is, I think they just don't understand very well how the markets function and what the public purpose is. Because, you know, in a, in a typical financial market, the primary purpose is to help the parties to the exchange. And of course, there's nothing wrong with that. Lots of good about it. But when we're setting the price of oil futures or pork bellies or whatever, it's, it's not for the general public. It's for the people who who use or make those commodities. And in the case of a political prediction market, the information that's generated is a benefit to the general public. And I think the regulators with their typical blinders on about what, how the world works and what they regulate just have trouble seeing that there's this great public benefit in these markets that should compel them or make a compelling case to allow them. So, I mean, you're implicitly saying that they think that there is some harm, but John, you said if you ask them, they won't tell you what their reasoning was. They must say something. I mean, what have they said publicly or even privately, if you can, anything you can, you can report, anything you can say? I mean, have I they said say, anything at all? I can't say as to political prediction markets in general, they have raised concerns about manipulation of elections. And in the case of predicted, that's hard to imagine. We have an $850 position limit. And with the amount of money sloshing around elections right now, $850 isn't going to buy you anything. We also have a 5,000 trader limit in any one contract. So if that were their fear, they cited state anti-gaming laws. A lot of states make it illegal to bet on elections, though that really hasn't stopped them in, in other areas. So that, that's in general. In particular, as to predict it, they issued a letter in August of last year that simply said that the market had not been operated in within the terms of the no-action letter. And they reiterated about 10 or 11 different terms, that $850 position limit I mentioned and some other things. And so you really have to look at the letter, and, and it doesn't say specifically what we did wrong. 
in their mind, according to them, all that matters is that you violated, they believe you violated a rule, not that actually it hurt anybody. All they care about is the rules that they made. They say you didn't follow some of them and therefore you have to be shut down. Forget whether it helped or hurt people. It doesn't matter. They don't care. Right. Is that being to, too harsh? Yeah, no. And they don't have to tell us what it is that we did wrong. That's the other piece of this. Right. <laughs> which, which one of those conditions you right. violate? That's right. And that gets to sort of the heart of the litigation, I think, and what the implications are is why I'm so pleased to have of Davon today, because this is not the only federal government agency or government agency that probably behaves in this fashion. And that gets to what happens if, you know, we win this injunction. Right. So you've gone to court to get kind of a stay on this on this order to, to close down, right? If you could explain sure. the status of all of that. So we've, we've actually challenged the entire action, the entire uh, shutdown of the market. And we've done that on the basis of the Administrative Procedures Act. And of course, there are, as John mentioned, all kinds of federal agencies that regulate Americans' lives in various ways. And basically, the Administrative Procedures Act says, well, if you're going to do that, then when you make these decisions, you have to provide a reasoned explanation for what you're doing. And the courts are able to review that, right? And so if if some agency cuts off somebody's business, their ability to make a living or whatever, they have to give reasons and the court has to be able to review. So... And the CFTC doesn't have any exemption from the Administrative Procedure Act, right? They do not. But they have said that these no-action letters are not reviewable by courts, and they don't have to provide reasons. And they've said that for a technical reason known as the final agency action doctrine. And so that's what we're fighting over in court is basically whether a federal agency can take this sort of action without review by the courts and without uh, giving specific reasons for what they've done. And the first stage of that is to try to, to get what's known as a preliminary injunction to allow us to keep operating the market while the court hears the broader case. And that motion for a preliminary injunction is going to be heard by the, the Fifth Circuit, which sits in New Orleans on February 8th. Because there have been other cases on the same issue, because you'd imagine that other agencies have tried this same thing and has upset somebody. So there actually have only been a few cases on the specific topic of these no-action letters. And no-action letters are issued by a variety of different agencies, the Communications Commission, Trade Commission, the Securities and Exchange Commission, in addition to the CFTC. But each agency's version of those letters is a little bit different. So the few cases that have been out there have been different enough from ours that we believe the, the facts demand for an outcome. There was one case in the D.C. Circuit for anybody with legal interest who wants to look it up, the soundboard decision which the D.C. Circuit said was not final agency action. In that case, because the group that had asked for the relief had the option of appealing to the commission rather than just getting relief from the staff. Uh, We didn't have that option in our case. That's why we think that's different. In another case, the group was challenging sort of indirectly. It was challenging an action that some schools had taken in reaction to a Department of Education letter and, and the court said, look, the schools had a lot of choices in how they complied with this. And so you can't come in and, and challenge this as a, as a non-party. But really very few cases. And so this is likely to break some new ground one way or another. A little bit about the CFTC's authority in this case. Does Congress need to speak or what do you think of, of the CFTC Act? Well, we think the CFTC has acted unjustly and abruptly. And so, yes, should Congress act, that would be wonderful. But the agenda in Congress is full. And the one thing we know is they're not going to intervene in the middle of a lawsuit. So we're going to have to win or lose this lawsuit. 
but perhaps depending on what happens, uh, Congress could follow up with legislation. Yes, it seems if you if you don't get an injunction, then even before the the case is heard on its merits, the markets will will disappear basically. It, w- it would be impossible for us to continue to operate the market without an injunction. That's correct. And because because we're held, you know, in terrorum, in essence, the, the threat is that, that if we continue to operate the market, they're going to come in with an enforcement case and, and bring the hammer down. Right, right. And let's say that you do get the injunction. How, how long would it be until the, the case was heard on its merits? Well, the courts don't operate on mandatory schedules, so it would be months at a minimum and probably months beyond that to get an opinion. And whichever side were to win or lose, then you've got the possibility of an appeal. So not to be glib, but is this one of the, is this the contract you could buy? Unpredict it? (laughs) You could buy unpredict it, but there actually is another market out there that will allow you to buy a a contract on whether we're going to get a preliminary injection or not. What are the odds according to that? I I have not looked to see, it's not a retail market, so you have to be a, you know, an organization with certain, you know, cash and so on like that to do it. I haven't looked to see what the odds are. But even if you got an injunction, would that just mean that the current contracts would continue or would you be right? It would it would allow us to continue to have the current contracts be offered until the case was concluded. And that's sort of a normal to hold things where they are, because obviously if the market closes down, then the case is is going to be practically moot, if not legally moot, by the time that the court gets around to issuing a decision. But it wouldn't allow for any new contracts to be introduced until We've asked, so we have these markets involving the 2024 uh, Republican and Democratic presidential nominations, general election, and we've asked to be able to keep those open and to add new candidates, right, if they come up. But so very, very limited in that respect. Right. And of course, if we win the whole thing, then, then we would hope to be back in operation and offering Senate and House races and, and other political questions as we, as we have in the past. Right. right. We know we often, I mean, at any one time, we might have 300 different markets were it not for, for this. Right. New Hampshire so primary, you know, all those things that are people want to want to forecast. So, so in terms of the slightly broader landscape, as you know, the, the University of Iowa has been operating political prediction markets. I don't think as many markets as you all have had, but also kind of a as an academic institution, I guess also under a no action letter, but have they have they been told to cease operations? Not that I'm aware of. They were really the trailblazer on this. It was 30 years ago that they got their no action letter. And the no action letter that Victoria University received that I referenced at the beginning of this program, it was patterned on University of Iowa's uh, the oh. no action letter they received. Well, so I guess since they didn't tell you which one of the conditions you violated of the no action letter. You don't. You can't really explain why they went after you and not the University of Iowa. I can't. I can't explain it's, anything. It's maybe that the, univers- the University of Iowa has two senators and several members of Congress. <laughs> maybe yeah, New Zealand does not. That's a good point. <laughs> yeah. And also, also, there's another. I think a bigger operation, Calci, which is you, you referenced earlier, which is has an approved basically is an approved exchange platform from by the CFTC and has made this application to introduce these political event markets and is waiting, I guess, waiting for the CFTC's decision. I guess I assume that the CFTC, maybe, <laughs> maybe they, they're hoping they'll win the case against you before they have to make a decision about Kelsey, or I don't know if you want to speculate. It's, it's hard to understand how those two are related. 
I can tell you that one of the commissioners, one of the FTC commissioners, released a statement when the Calshi petition was first filed, essentially saying, hey, it's not fair that Predictit should be able to do this and Calshi shouldn't. And that, you know, I can understand that argument. But she at least made that connection. But other than that, the process is opaque to us. We we did file comments on the Calshi petition, and we urged the commission to approve it. And we would love to see these markets approved for fully regulated markets, uh, designated contract markets, as they're known in the, technically. And, and in fact, we have an application to run a DCM from Aristotle pending right now, and it's moving along through the regulatory process in the CFTC. Right. But that's even if we were approved, we would not, neither we nor Calci would be able to offer these election contract markets because of the Nadex decision and the reasoning behind that that Dave described. So what these markets is, if it weren't for having to get these no action letters in the CFTC, would we see other organizations, institutions, and companies offering these kinds of prediction markets, do you think? Oh, yeah. You know, to compete with you? Yeah. Well, would we? Yeah. We should. I mean, that's the correct answer, not to shut down the one. Yeah. If you're the chairman of the CFTC and you're complaining about the pressure you're getting, the correct answer is not to shut down the, the political prediction market that exists. It's to, it's to allow political prediction markets. This is what the voters, you know, people want. So Calci is not going the, the route you went. Calci is trying to get their contracts approved under the normal way the CFTC approves contracts. Right. Correct. Right. So, yeah. So I don't know if you had any, any comments on this general. I mean, I, I saw the, the types of questions the CFTC was, uh, was asking of Calshi. You know, basically, it's kind of a little bit, it's a pre-approval process, in some sense, comparable to, to the FDA. <laughs> I mean, FDA's, FDA's stuff is more life and death, but you have to prove there's an economic purpose. You have to prove that all sorts of things. I mean, actually, when I looked at those questions, I thought actually the answer to most of them was yes, that there was, could be a legitimate hedging function. There could, even aside from the fact, just the information function. But I mean, what is your view on, you know, there's lots of products that get in- introduced and you don't know exactly what, how valuable or what their purpose is going to be ex ante, but what they turn out to have to be very useful for a variety of things. I mean, should it be the business of a government agency to require that type of uh, proof before the fact, rather than somehow showing that there would be some harm? That's a big question. And philosophically, I'm with the premise of your question that that Americans should be able to do pretty much what they want, uh, unless they're hurting somebody else. And we don't see how these markets hurt anyone. But that's so far from where we are right now that we sort of can't get there from here, at least in one step, right? And so our choices, you know, as an operator interested in the space are to go in and get a no action letter or to get licensed under the normal process. Would we love for this to be opened up more generally? Certainly. Do you see any parallels with the sports betting process? So we've watched that a little bit. So five years ago, it was kind of looked down upon. And then you see now it's mainstreamed. how does it compare political markets with sports markets? Well, certainly in the sense that Predicted has provided a market as for do people want these markets? And the answer is a resounding yes. We've had to shut off markets because too many people wanted to get into them. And so in terms of at least a public demand, uh, that's certainly out there. I'll leave it at that. Actually, do you think that the people talking about this as betting markets make, makes life more difficult? For you all, for one thing, you know, there are people have this 
on one hand, aversion to gambling or gaming. On the other hand, of course, everyone loves it. That's why Las Vegas is so popular. But there are also powerful interests in gaming who don't want anyone else to be in their market, even though this isn't gambling. Do you think that kind of confusion between gambling and markets makes life more difficult for you? It does. Yeah. To take it in the, you know, in the other way, there are all kinds of people on Wall Street with the big investment houses and so on like that who refer to taking investment positions as making a bet. And so, you know, it can kind of work both ways. But again, the, the big difference that we see between these election markets and gaming is the one that I, that I referred to before, which is there's a public purpose to these markets, right? It's great fun, but if you win at roulette or blackjack or whatever, there's no public benefit. But if we're allowed to operate this political prediction market, there's a clear public benefit. And we think that's an important distinction that makes it a lot different than gaming, no matter how other structures. Yeah, you know, as, as Tom pointed out in the introduction, that there are more than 100 educators, academics, researchers at universities in the United States or around the world who have signed contracts. They get the data for free, of course, but they use the anonymized trading data to try to understand a number of different things. Why are markets so accurate? Not just political forecast markets, but all types of markets at forecasting what the future might be. They're not perfect, of course, but those are the kinds of, you know, what makes a super forecaster? How does that person come up with forecasts that are more accurate than the rest of the herd? And so it's fascinating what this folks are researching and it's important research. And it, and then you've got, as Dave was pointing out, you've got the public benefit with the, the ability to double check polling results or pundits. These markets are notoriously more accurate than pollsters and pundits when it comes to forecasting election outcomes. Uh, so, and then you've yeah, got to, the benefit. To, to, build on that for, yeah. to build on that for a second, sorry to, sorry to interrupt, but you know, this, that, I don't mean to sound too conspiracy-minded, but it would seem like you also would have a lot of enemies. I mean, Gallup shouldn't like you to be there. All of these political consulting firms who do lots of uh, polls for their clients, who spend tons of money on them, they must hate this too. It sounds like, I mean you probably don't have a lot of political support. Oh, I don't know. You know what? It's interesting. Everybody, if you like the odds, you like predicted. If you don't like the odds that the market's giving you, you may not like predicted that day. The fact of the matter is these markets are, you know, they've got some real advantages to polling. One of the disadvantages is they're not confidential. So if you're running a campaign and you you want you do a poll and you find out that your your candidate has some deficiencies, you're not going to go out and put that up on a website with, you know, predict it. It's, it's all out there. So you don't think they see you as competition? I think some do, but you know, we've been doing this now for, as said, for eight years and candidates are thrilled to tout their predicted odds when it helps them raise money or show momentum or whatever it may be. And that's at the presidential level all the way down. So I don't think this, you know, the pushback is coming from the talking class. I think it's it's more has to do, I think we are right smack dab in the middle of one of the important bites over how broad a bureaucracy's reach should be into the lives of, of individual Americans. Is this the first time the CFTC has come after predicted since they gave the no action letter? The only time. So, so, yeah, so first and yeah, No, no, we have enjoyed a... I think a really good relationship with the CFTC over the years. And there's been lots of communication, not once, not once have they, this is unusual. I'll put it that way. So and, we're, and I mean, this is going back at, this is going back into the, right. So I was going to ask, this is going back to the opaqueness, but why now? 
what triggered it? I mean, I guess the answer is who knows, but... Well, I know somebody who knows. You know, I just don't know. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So I agree that predicted and there are good theoretical reasons why they might be more accurate than polls. I guess, I mean, it's, I don't know, you can't, it's hard to make rigorous comparisons, but they do seem largely to be, they seem often to be more accurate, but not this last election, I think, right? Right, yeah. So I, have, I have a theory on that that I would love for somebody to study, and that is in Predict It and other prediction markets, there's a, there's a support bias, and that is all of the things being equal, people are more likely to want to buy in favor of the candidate they support than against some other candidate. And initially, when we were running predicted, as a result of that, when we had a multi-candidate market, right, eight or 10 people who were legitimate contenders for the Republican presidential nomination, we could get aggregate odds that would run up to 120, 130%. And so that told us the market wasn't functioning properly, right, because, because the market really ought to be right there at or around 100%. And so we developed a mechanism to make it more attractive for professional investors to come in and buy the nodes, right? Because if you look at that market at 130% and you bought no on everybody, you were guaranteed to make a profit. And so we developed a margining system that made it easy for people to come in and do that. It did exactly what we thought. It brought those odds back down to where they're around 100%. And my theory, and this is only a theory, is that a lot of those professional investors left the market after the CFTC made its announcement in August because they didn't know what was going on and, and they were not there really for the, the political thrill of it. They were there to try and make some money. And when they left the market, it left an oversupply, if you will, of enthusiasts. And those enthusiasts bid up the prices, generally speaking, of Republican candidates this last fall. And I think if somebody who's interested in a great research project will make the data available to them and, and see if that hypothesis uh, plays out or not. But I believe that's what happened. Because there would be would be a risk, I guess, of uh, regardless if you were right or wrong, just losing your money because the because the company, company would they wouldn't be able to to make good uh, on yeah right unstable un- unstable regulatory environment exactly right right it's an interesting hypothesis. I can see Scott thinking about how to how to how to test it. <laughs> I, I am, but um, we'll, we'll leave it to some um, ambitious uh, political science student, I believe. Well, this has been very very interesting. I appreciate you guys coming on. Is there anything else we should know before we end this? Well, well Tom, let me just say one thing we haven't talked about, which is the the personal benefit. I know this has worked with many friends of mine. I'm not allowed to bet on predicted, but. I can tell you for a fact, when you have a little bit of this effect, that when you have a little bit of skin in the game, just a couple bucks, it clears your thinking in terms of what you think is going to happen rather than what you want to have happen. And that's a great thing because it also forces you to, it inclines you to absorb more information. And there's an analogy that, that Sarah made about sports betting. In sports betting, the studies have shown if you put a little money into a sporting event, you consume a lot more of ESPN statistics because you have a hunger for objective data that might help you make a few bucks. The same, I think, happens with predicted. If you have a little skin in the game, you're more likely to pay attention and to view with a skeptical eye the information that's coming at you about the candidates or the election. And so if you think of predicted as sort of an antidote to fake news, if you bet based on fake news, you're going to lose your money. And so you're more likely with just a little bit of skin in the game 
to be a more careful consumer of political information, which there's certainly another benefit there to allowing the predicted experiment to continue. Yeah, no, I agree. Of course, the causality probably goes both ways. Yeah, if you're a careful consumer of political news, you may be more likely to bet on, to, to participate and predict. That's a great compliment to the 80,000 predicted traders out there. Thank you. Right. Well, thank you very much for, uh, for participating in this podcast. It was very interesting. I, I think it's, a, it's an interesting and also an important, an important issue. So thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, hi, I'm Tom Leonard. It's now February 10th. And uh, I'm pleased to welcome John Phillips and Dave Mason back. Uh, and there have been some developments since our original recording. And, um, and they're here to bring us up to date. So uh, if you guys could uh, kind of tell us what's happened since then, I'd, we'd appreciate it. Sure. Dave, go ahead, please. So since we uh, first talked, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals entered an injunction pending appeal, meaning that we can continue to operate the predicted market while the, the case proceeds. And so it was a big relief. And then on uh, February the 8th, they held a hearing for a three-judge panel, which is typical for a circuit court, and uh, had arguments from uh, our attorney for Predicted, an attorney for the CFTC. We believe that hearing went very well. Uh, the judges uh, asked uh, appropriate uh, but hard questions of the CFTC about uh, uh, what they meant when they told Predicted to close the market if they didn't mean to close the market, <laughs> because the, the CFTC was sort of doing this dance, saying, well, we didn't really mean it. Um, uh, one of the judges. I think they, I think they didn't quite. They didn't quite endorse the word that it was just a suggestion, but that's kind of the implication. <laughs> it, it was. It was kind of the implication, right? Um, you know, a, a friendly suggestion, an avuncular suggestion, but the CFTC is not your uncle, right? So, uh, one of the judges uh, said that, that the CFTC had a license to bully. And uh, another, another of the judges said, you know, how do they read it other than as a death sentence? And so, you know, we think the panel understood the concerns that we had. Uh, they agreed that, uh, that this needed to be reviewed by a court and we're hopeful um, sometime a month or two down the road that we'll get an opinion saying that the CFTC did this inappropriately and, and should go back and, and, and uh, let us continue to operate or go through some further process if they want us to do something different. So now, so, so you have the injunction, so you don't have to, you don't have to terminate the existing contracts. You're still, you're not in a position where you're, I, I guess, able to introduce any new, any new contracts yet. Okay. Not yet. So, so let's say, so it goes to, so what you're saying is the next step is it's going to go for a, a, a hearing on the merits? Is that what the law, lawyers would call it? Or? So so we actually asked, because this whole argument is what we call in, in judicial proceedings over legal issues, right? There's legal issues, what the law is, factual issues, what happened. And, and this is all about legal issues. Did the government go through an appropriate process to shut down a market? And so we believe that if the, if the circuit agrees they didn't go through an appropriate process, game over. And so they should send it back down to the to the district court with an instruction to dissolve the the August fourth uh, uh, withdrawal letter, and we would be back in business. They they may grant that, or as an alternative, they may do as you suggested and say, okay, we're gonna gonna put in a long term injunction, but we're gonna send it back to the district court for a hearing on the merits as to 
whether this was done appropriately or not. So, but that would be the merits of whether the, the procedural merits, right? Whether they have to, whether, I guess, whether it was, uh, I, I'm not exactly sure what that means. That they, they would have to explain themselves. They, they, exactly. They would have to explain themselves. They would have to produce uh, what's called into law an administrative record that says, okay, here, here's what we did and here's why we did it. And the court would then, then review that. Uh, but in this case, we don't think they have much of an administrative record because they didn't think they needed to explain themselves to a court. Uh, and so that's one of the reasons that we're hopeful that, that the, the circuit court will, will just do this all at once. Uh, but either way, uh, we'll have an opportunity to, to make it a case. But it still doesn't get to the, to, in, some, what some sense, in some sense, the fundamental issue as to whether uh, political event markets are legal or allowable well not in the broader sense i mean it it could uh give us a renewed lease on life right um and, and saying that predict it could could continue to operate the market that it was operating before we got that letter back in august um and so that would at least for the for the immediate future set that course out but the nature of these administrative procedures act claims is that they are procedural Right. And so the substantive issues are really up to the agency. So certainly in the long run, it's going to be up to the CFTC uh, as to whether they want these markets to operate and how, uh, what kind of rules they're going to have on them. Right, right. So the CFTC can, I, I, I'm not as familiar, obviously, as perhaps I should be with the, uh, with the details of the act as to what it says about or doesn't say about political event markets but that but the but the obviously the CFTC has a history of not of not approving these markets they Most they markets. do but they're in an interesting situation right now because as we discussed earlier um Calshi, which is an existing market that's already registered with the CFTC right. has asked to be allowed to offer political event contracts the CFTC did not give them an answer within the time they should have they asked Calshi for an extension to January Calshi agreed and then they came back and asked Calshi for an extension to March Calshi agreed to that and so that's at least an indication that the CFTC is not in a hurry to say no. Right. Um, and, and so we're, we're hopeful that one way or another, there'll be a future for these markets. And, and uh, that could happen uh, as early as March in terms of an announcement of the uh, CFTC's policy position on these markets. Dave, I think it might be interesting, Tom, if you'll allow me, for Dave to speak a little bit about what the implications are for not just the CFTC, but for other federal agencies that rely on no action letters. I think that's one of the untold parts of this story and what is now up at bat. Dave, can you indulge us on that? Sure. sure. There's, so there's a great point because, as I said, the CFTC thought that their action was, was unreviewable, that they could just pull this NAL no court would look at it, and that would be the end of the story. And a lot of federal agencies operate that way with these so-called staff letters, no action letters. And, uh, and we believe the Fifth Circuit judges were very skeptical of that claim, uh, that you can't just come in and allow a market to operate for eight years and then pull the rug out from under them, and, and you've got no place to go, no review, anything like that. And, uh, and so if the Fifth Circuit agrees with us, uh, then that's going to change 
the administrative law for not only the CFTC, but for all the other federal regulatory agencies, the Securities and Exchange Commission, the Federal Trade Commission, they go through similar procedures. And so it, it could be a, a major change in administrative law, uh, making these administrative agencies more accountable to federal courts when they uh, grant and withdraw permission for individuals and organizations to conduct their activities. Okay, well, I really appreciate you all coming back, uh, and we will. Uh, obviously, I'm not a, as I'm not an unbiased observer, so hopefully, <laughs> hopefully, you guys are successful, and um, uh, we will we will uh, we'll follow this we'll follow the developments closely. Thank you very much. Thank Thanks you very much, Tom. Tom.